Are you looking to scale up your healthcare solution in partnership with leading healthcare companies? Companies such as Blue Shield of California, Cigna Healthcare, Evernorth Health Services, Optum Labs, and United Health Group, which together have over 200 million members. Applications are open for the 2022 UCSF Roseman ADAPT program. ADAPT awardees will receive $100,000 cash support and connections to payers for startups developing breakthrough technologies to improve healthcare efficiency. To apply, visit rosamaninstitute.org. California is a very complicated state politically. You know, this is the fifth largest economy in the world. So when you try to pass state legislation that's going to affect 40 million people, fifth largest economy in the world, obviously a lot of people and groups are going to have a lot of opinions about it. And, And so when you propose legislation that impacts an entire industry significantly, Um, They will fight it hard and they have a lot of lobbyists and they'll put a lot of money into it and they'll use scare tactics um, and and all that. And and passing business regulation in California, we have a reputation of being so progressive. It's actually quite hard. And now from San Francisco and the UCSF Rosenman Institute, the Health Technology Podcast with your host, Christine Winotto. everyone. Many of you have heard me talk to guests about mental health, health insurance coverage, and addiction treatment. Today, I'm so happy to introduce California State Senator Scott Wiener, who is working to address these issues in our state government. Senator Scott Wiener started as a lawyer living in the Castro neighborhood, my neighborhood, He served on the San Francisco Board of Supervisors and was the Deputy City Attorney in San Francisco Attorney Office for almost a decade. Today, he represents San Francisco and Northern San Mateo County in our state Senate. His legislative priorities are very important to us and our community. Here's our conversation. Well, welcome, Senator Winner. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to have you. You are the first uh, elected official that is still in the office that is on our podcast. I'm honored. And you were my district supervisor before you became the state senator. I thought it would be good for us to hear a little bit about your background, uh, your journey, and what also prompted you and um, make you decide that you want to run for office? Sure. Well, again, thank you for having me. Um, so I, I grew up in, uh, in New Jersey, suburban New Jersey, outside of Philadelphia in a, a Jewish family in an extremely non-Jewish uh, area, um, an area with a lot of uh, anti-Semitism. And so I experienced a lot of uh, bigotry uh, growing up. Um, I also... Um, you know, growing up was a, a closeted gay kid uh, and ultimately came out in college. But growing up, I knew that I was uh, different. And, and of course, I, I was growing up in the 1980s and, and ultimately acknowledged to myself that I was gay in 1987 when I was 17 years old. And that was the height of or it's just the, some of the worst parts of the HIV AIDS uh, crisis uh, where 
people were dying uh, left and right, and, and there was no effective treatment, and the federal government had abandoned us. Uh, and so uh, early on, uh, even though I don't come from a political family, no one in my family had ever been involved uh, in politics before, I, at an early age, became very, very aware uh, of, of what happens when uh, politics isn't doing what it needs to do. And so I uh, started getting involved volunteering on local campaigns, got more involved in college in North Carolina, and then in law school became very involved in LGBTQ activism. And when I arrived in San Francisco, just continued uh, doing that community work and then getting involved in politics. And it just always made sense for me. And to me, holding elected office is um, just another form of community organizing and community activism, just playing a different role in that process. Uh, and, and that's what really motivated me to run. And so what brought you to San Francisco? Well, as I mentioned, I'm from the Philadelphia area, and I always assumed I would end up there. Um, and during law school, I did my first summer at a law firm in Philadelphia and thought I would go back there because that's where my family is. Um, and then I decided, you know, I should, I should at least check out another city and not just assume uh, where I'm going to end up. And um, when I thought about it, the only city that really called out to me was San Francisco just as a gay man. Um, and so I spent summer uh, of 95, my second summer of law school in at a law firm in San Francisco and uh, fell in love with the city immediately. Uh, it was still a hard choice to, to settle down 2,500 miles from my parents and my sister uh, and, and the rest of my family, but I, uh, you know, my, my gut told me that that was what to do, and I've never regretted it. Oh, that's good. So I mentioned earlier that you were uh, district supervisor, supervisor, city supervisor, and can you give us a bit in term, like at least for me, like how has your role changed from being a representative in the district in the city and now as a state level? Yeah, it's it's very. Uh, uh, different. So when I was on the board of supervisors, you know, I represented, um, you know, as you know, because you live there, um, the Castro and Noe Valley and surrounding neighborhoods. It was the district that Harvey Milk uh, used to represent. Um, but you're representing 75,000 people um, in the state Senate. I'm representing about a million uh, people. And on the board of supervisors, it was very rewarding. I love being on the board of supervisors because um, it's a it's small enough that you can know an awful lot of the people you represent. Um, I knocked on like fifteen thousand doors when I ran in twenty ten, so that probably represents about half of the population of the district that knocked on their doors. And you are when you're on the board of supervisors, you are so closely connected to your constituents. You're the closest, and so I was every day interacting with constituents about what was happening in the city, what was happening in their neighborhoods, the things they liked, the things they were mad about, um, the, the challenges they were having in life. I would personally receive several hundred constituent emails a day in addition to what my staff was uh, receiving. So we were really helping people a lot and, and also very involved in um, neighborhood level projects. So um, I um, you know, really shepherded through the 
the widening of the Castro Street sidewalks. They used to be very narrow. We, we doubled them in, in width. We created a new uh, public plaza in Noe Valley, the Noe Valley Town Square. We renovated massively Dolor- Dolores Park, which was in desperate need, and it is a much, much better park now. As a result, we renovated all the recreation facilities in Glen Canyon, um, and so on and so forth. And and so those that's very rewarding to work arm in arm with the, with the community, with with neighbors, um, to make their neighborhood uh, better. And so that was rewarding. And then, and then of course we did the work at City Hall. Um, and uh, now being in the Senate, you know, I'm representing a million people instead of seventy five thousand. Um, my District staff spend a lot of time on constituent services, so we're still helping people on a regular basis. Um, but for, for me, I'm even though I'm in the city as much as I can be, I'm in Sacramento. Um, you know, probably eighty percent of my work is policy legislation, so that's very rewarding to be able to take on big issues and try to make a difference. But you're a little bit further away uh, from from day to day constituent needs. So it's which which I you know sometimes wish I were. Um, uh, you know, there, there are pros and cons, and uh, but it's just a very, very different role. Yeah, no, I still remember when uh, you were our supervisor, we had our neighborhood watch meeting, and you were there. So oh. I can see that uh, one of your, uh, the work that you do, you're pretty close to your constituents and definitely benefit a lot from the Dolores Park and the Noe Valley uh, Center there. Um, I, you know, as you know, we're hear a lot about health technology, healthcare, and in 2020, I just want to bring it up that you author uh, a bill that make California the national leader in mental health and substance abuse disorder care. I mean, can you tell us more about that? And why do you want to author that bill? Yeah, that was Senate Bill 855, um, I believe you're referring to, um, our mental health parity law. You know, we have, I think, historically in this country, and I, I imagine elsewhere, there's been this notion that that behavioral health, that mental health, is somehow different than physical health. That you know, if you if you have a heart attack, or you have high blood pressure, or you break your arm, or you have um, asthma, that's like a that's that is a disease that we have to treat, and insurance needs to cover it, and and, and, you know, it's very clear and there's a consensus that, that there's a problem that has come on your body, <laughs> um, come upon you and, and needs to be treated. With mental health, um, and this is in part because there's been historically so little understanding around mental health, it's been viewed as not really a physical problem, that it's somehow either a, a moral or character failure or you're just not strong enough or... You just need to snap out of it or, you know, splash some water in your face and, and have a better attitude um, or just take deep breaths um, and, uh, and and it'll all be fine. Uh, and, and of course, we have known for a while and now really know that you know, mental health disorders are, are, are physical. It's, a, it's about it's a brain uh, disease when you have, you know, clinical depression or anxiety or, or trauma, uh, PTSD, it is an, it's, a, it's no different than a physical problem. And, and, and it needs to be treated that way instead of being viewed as just like a character failure or not being tough enough. 
Um, and so um, the mental health parity is the idea that we treat um, mental health the same as physical health. And just like if you show up with a broken arm or with high blood pressure, you get treatment. If you show up with, you know, depression or anxiety or, 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 um, or another mental health challenge, you get treatment. And, and, and with this legislation, the specific problem we were trying to address, which is a huge one, is that his, historically, um, insurance, health insurance companies, health plans, have basically refused to give people either adequate mental health coverage or any. Uh, and you have uh, insurance companies that uh, either, like, for example, will only cover crisis mental health care. So if you're on your way to the hospital, you're having a full break, they'll cover that. But then they'll only cover it to get you like patched up and, and, and somewhat stable and out of the hospital, but then no ongoing treatment. And so the, people have really, even people who have insurance, who have the, you know, resources, have really struggled to get coverage uh, for care. And the idea you know, that we would only cover crisis mental health care it's really no different than saying, okay, you have, you've been diagnosed with stage one cancer. Um, we're not going to cover your treatment for that. We'll only cover you once you hit stage four cancer, then come back. It's just, we would never tolerate that. And yet we've tolerated that um, for mental health treatment. So this bill, um, and it does set a national standard. Um, it's the strongest mental health parity law in the country. It says that you, that you, that if, if a provider determines that it is medically necessary for you to have X treatment for a mental health diagnosis, the insurance company must cover it. Just like it must cover it if your orthopedist says that, that you have a broken bone and you need to fix it. Um, so that's what the law does. It was a huge fight with the health insurance industry. Um, but the bill ultimately passed with overwhelming bipartisan support because mental health is an area where there's not a lot of disagreement between Democrats and Republicans. So it was a big step. Now we have to enforce it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's great to hear there's bipartisan support in such an important issue. Um, can you share with us, I mean, you mentioned that there's a lot of pushback when you try to pass this bill. Um, how do you overcome that? Because it can be pretty uh, big influence, right, for uh Healthcare companies. Yeah. So, past, you know, California is a very complicated state politically. You know, this is the fifth largest economy in the world. So, when you try to pass state legislation that's going to affect 40 million people, fifth largest economy in the world, obviously a lot of people and groups are going to have a lot of opinions about it. And, and so, when you propose legislation that impacts an entire industry significantly. Um, they will fight it hard and they have a lot of lobbyists and they'll put a lot of money into it and they'll use scare tactics um, and, and and all that. And it's, and passing business regula regulation in California, we have a reputation of being so progressive. It's actually quite hard. Um, it's There are a lot of like regulations around uh, climate uh, and some other areas that have have been very very hard uh, to pass, um, and so the industry fought us on it. Um, and 
it, but and early on it was you know it was it was sort of tough but as the bill moved forward you know once you my my experience and and you know one thing that distinguishes um our legislature and i think this is true probably in a lot of states distinguishes it from congress is there is a lot more um working across the aisle and my experience is that if you have an area and we see this in housing policy as well if you can get some republicans to support what you're doing and and get a critical mass of republican support even though we have two-thirds democratic majority democrats sometimes split we're not always unified and so if you can get some republicans it just opens up a lot of doors it it really deflates the opposition because it, it it just it creates a different kind of momentum and so on several hard mental health insurance coverage bills we've been able to get some early republican support and it it just creates like a steamroller kind of effect Mm -hmm. this podcast is sponsored by brown rutnick's global life sciences group a team of legal professionals that help life science companies lenders and investors around the world turn good science into good business Learn more at brownrudnick.com. This podcast is also sponsored by Canon Quality Group. Canon Quality Group has been helping medtech startups set up quality management systems for over 10 years. If you're unsure when to get started with quality management in your startup, turn to the experts at canonqualitygroup.com. And can you share with us, you know, besides the obvious, that why the pushback from the industry? Well, just general rule that most industries, they, they just don't want to be told what to do. They want to do business the, the, using whatever business model they've come up with. Um, and I'm, a, I'm, you know, I support free enterprise and I, I um, uh, you know, su- support regulated, regulated capitalism, but the regulated part is important. Um, you, you, because otherwise consumers can get screwed. And we've seen that in this context that, for insurance companies, they don't they don't really want to broadly cover mental health services because it, it's expensive and um, they just don't want to do it. Um, and they've been able to get away with it. And so we are just trying to shift the paradigm to say mental health, no different than someone having a heart condition or or, or cancer. You have to treat it. Um, and so uh, I think we're we're winning that fight. Because we passed a follow-up piece of legislation in 2021, Senate Bill 221, which provides timeliness standards for giving people mental health appointments. Because what we were seeing in Kaiser and some of the other health plan networks is that it, for people who would come in and, with a mental health condition, they would get an initial appointment with a therapist or other mental health professional. And then they'd have to wait two months for their second appointment. And two months for the third appointment. And to, to the point where it wasn't really effective. And some people who had some resources could then pay out of pocket for more timely access. But it's just not appropriate. So the, the bill provides that, that health plans have to, um, unless the provider thinks you don't need this, they have to cover um, and provide uh uh, every every two weeks, a follow up appointment, unless the provider says no, you don't need it every two weeks. Um, and that was another fight, but again, we got strong bipartisan support and we got it passed. It just went into effect July first, 
And the health plans, as far as I can tell, are not in compliance. And so that's like now another fight. Because what I've also learned in this job, passing a bill into law, getting it signed by the governor is a huge step, but that's only the first step. You then have to make sure it's getting implemented and enforced because if the agency that's in charge doesn't enforce it or doesn't implement it, it's as if you hadn't passed the law in the first place. And I have a question on how how can you enforce this? Well, on these two laws, the enforcement agency is the primarily is the Department of Managed Healthcare, DMHC. The Department of Insurance has a smaller um, role. But the Department of Managed Healthcare is really in charge of enforcement. And so what happened, what, we had a big coalition behind both of these bills. And that coalition, those advocates, um, monitor and participate in the rulemaking process. Because when we pass a law like this, usually you give the agency some period of time. Sometimes it's like a year to come up with the regulations, the implementing regulations. Um, and you have to make sure that your that your advocates are really engaged um, in providing feedback when the agency puts out a draft uh, to make sure that it's strong. Um, then once those regulations go into effect, um, it is basically complaint-driven. Um, and so we you know, always tell people and, and also clinicians, if an insurance company is denying coverage and it seems like it's a violation of the law, file a complaint with the Department of Managed Healthcare um, so that an investigation can happen. Um, for truly big and egregious violations, we like to know about it because sometimes we'll make it public and try to draw attention uh, uh, to it. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's, it's really um, about that kind of accountability. On the, that, that whole like timely access bill um, that I uh, uh, mentioned um, about every, having to have an appointment that's appropriate every two weeks, um, the, the, the union uh, that represents Kaiser Mental Health Professionals, the National Union of Healthcare Workers, they have been, um, they're currently fighting with Kaiser about implementation. Um, and they are actually, they've authorized a strike around this. So there are different ways of, you know, of, of, of addressing it. Yeah. I'm just thinking as you were just listening to you, how with this bill, I mean, I know that a lot of the healthcare health plan companies are definitely paying more attention to, uh, into the mental health state and looking for innovative Technology. So in a way, when it's forced on them, it kind of pushed them in a way that they need to be looking into new way of delivering that care. And so more innovation come up from it. Yeah, that's true. And I think in mental health, it's really um, an area that's ripe for innovation. Uh, because again, the, the way we have delivered in the past. They, I, don't, I want to be clear, the insurance companies are not like the only issue, right? We need um, more clinicians. Um, I think the health plans will sometimes say, oh, there's a, a massive shortage and we can't do it. That's not true. There is a shortage, but it's, it's not as extreme as they say. It will be in five or 10 years if we don't act. And we've actually been doing a lot of work this year. Um, uh, I have legislation and we did work in the budget to try to expand um, our mental health workforce by um, shoring up the workforce we have, um, offering some more financial incentives, and, and you know, a lot of them are burned out, um, especially with the pandemic, and then 
um, taking some steps to recruit more into the system, have more accelerated degree programs, um, some stipends, especially for so, uh, social work programs. So, you know, there are a number of things that we need to do. I think it's also, I mean, I don't know, based on some of uh, people that I know um, who said to me that nowadays when they need to get psychotherapy, they have to pay out of pocket. And that is about $200 per session. And I'm thinking, boy, this is really only people who can afford it can have this treatment. Yeah, absolutely. It's a huge inequity. If you have money, I mean, although sometimes even people with money struggle to find a therapist right. or, a, that too. Or, or a psychologist who's available, but um, it's, uh, um, yeah, there's a huge inequity. One of the things that we're doing in, in the, just the mental health workforce bill that I have this year is requesting uh, a, a sort of licensing scope of practice study um, because there are California is notorious in a lot of professional settings for having being very protectionist in terms of out of state people coming in and practicing here, whether it's law or medicine, um, and also very rigid um, restrictions between like about who is allowed to do what. And one of the things we've been trying to do is really say in a lot of areas that health professionals should health providers should be able to practice to the extent of their education. And so a few years ago, we passed legislation that took like 20 years to get it passed to give greater autonomy to nurse practitioners to provide, you know, very basic care um, without having to be under the supervision of a physician, understanding there are parts of the state that it's just hard to even find a physician. Um, So giving a little more autonomy to nurse practitioners, we're allowing um, nurse practitioners to to perform abortions, which are trained to do because um, there aren't enough abortion providers uh, in the state. In the mental health field, we have very rigid delineations between what a psychiatrist can do, what a psychologist can do, what a social worker can do, what a therapist can do, et cetera. And what we want to do, and, and also out of state really struggle if they want to move to California. It's a, it's a nightmare. And so what we want to do is do an analysis, say, are there any changes in law we can make to say, okay, we have a limited mental health workforce. How can we make sure that all these professionals are able to deliver the mental, the behavioral health care that they're trained to do and not be arbitrarily restricted? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm sometimes it uh, uh, baffled me when I think about, I, I grew up in a different country. And so listening to that, when you get a driver license, say from New Jersey, you have to get tested driving test again when you're in California, kind of similar what you're saying if you're a trained nurse psychiatry or a psychologist in Montana, they have to come when they want to practice in California. Why do they have to do that? Yeah. So I have a friend who um, lived in San Francisco for many years um, and then uh, decided to get a, um, a PhD in um, psychology to become a, a licensed clinical psychologist. Um, and he did it out of state in Philadelphia. Um, and then he um, got his license in Pennsylvania and um, decided that he wanted, he was looking for where he wanted to ultimately settle down. And he, he was thinking about coming back to San Francisco. And when he looked at, 
at California's licensing transfer requirement for people who have a license out of state, he said it's so onerous. He was going to literally have to go and take classes that he had already taken and, and just like do a really duplicative education. He said it was so onerous that he's like, I don't know how I could come back to California. And he said all these other states is much easier, really easy to transfer my license. It's like, why is California so hard? And and yeah, I mean, that's my friend. He's a licensed clinical psychologist. We should want him back in California. And it's not like there's, you know, sometimes with these anti-competitive restrictions, it, it's because there are, you know, maybe too many people doing it. And so people are worried about too much competition. I mean, there's plenty of work to go around for <laughs> mental health professionals. We don't have enough psychiatrists, psychologists, social work, anything. We're short everything. And so it's not like people aren't going to be able to make a living. There's plenty of work there. And there's going to be only more because as we expand and mandate more insurance coverage uh, and as Medi-Cal pays for there's just going to be more and more work to go around as we get more people into treatment. So do you think that is the next bill that you're going to author? Um, well, the bill that I have now, um, the bill that I have now requires a study so that we have information and analysis about what are some changes that might be warranted. I know we are short on time, but uh, I still want to have a, a few things to talk about. You are introducing, uh, already introducing le- uh, the, the bill legislation to legalize safe injection sites. Yeah. And why is that important? Like, how is that affecting healthcare in our city and our state? So, um, yeah, so safe consumption sites. So, in, in general, we're trying to move away um, from uh, from the from the drug war and uh, a, a, a criminalization approach um, uh, for drugs. We, for fifty years, we've taken the approach that if you just keep arresting people and incarcerating people for uh, drug use and, and minor drug crimes that somehow people will stop using drugs. And of course that, that hasn't worked. Um, that has not reduced drug use or addiction. Um, in fact, it seems to be increasing. And we have now with the introduction of fentanyl, um, just an explosion of overdoses and overdose deaths, not just fentanyl, but fentanyl, heroin, meth, and mixing everything. And, and so we need to use every available tool and safe consumption sites um, are a model that has been used around the world for about 30 years in Europe and Canada and Australia. And it's a model where we say, okay, if people are already using, um, whether it's on the streets or elsewhere, um, let's give them a safe, healthy place to use um, where we can make sure that they have clean um, needles, or we can offer them treatment or other services that they may need, uh, where if they do overdose, they're not overdosing on the street or by themselves in a motel room somewhere, so we can reverse the overdose, not not have them die or not have them go to the ER, which puts pressure on hospitals. Let's just reverse it. Um, And and let's just take that approach. It's a harm reduction approach. And it's, you know, it's 
these people are already using. We're not like inducing them to use. We're just giving them a safe space to do it. And these um, there's, these sites are not a silver bullet, but they there's been a, a number of, of peer-reviewed studies that show they uh, there's never been an overdose death in one of these sites. Never, not not a single one in 30 years. And how many of those people would have overdosed and died on the streets had they not been in one of these sites? It reduces they reduce HIV and hepatitis infections because people aren't more likely to use clean uh, needles. Um, it reduces syringe litter because instead of using on the streets, people are using inside. And uh, a good percentage of the people um, uh, at some point end up going into treatment, uh, into recovery. Not everyone. And sometimes it might take a year or two years. But eventually, um, uh, you know, I think what I saw is about half of people end up going into uh, recovery. So these are... a good approach um and it's not legal here it's prohibited under state law um california should have been the first to, to pilot these programs um but unfortunately uh we got we got the bill on jerry on governor jerry brown's desk in 2018 he vetoed it which is a terrible mistake on his part but he vetoed it so now it looks like uh hopefully we're on track to get it on the governor newsom's death um uh, next next month and he hasn't said where what his position is on the bill but he's made some positive statements in the past so hopefully he'll sign it what would be the biggest challenge to get that passed well we've we've already um (laughs) overcome some of the biggest challenges um uh you know it passed the senate um we it just um passed the assembly um last month and it was a very hard vote on the assembly floor but we got it passed and now the Senate needs to sign off on some of the amendments that, the, that we made in the Assembly. Um, but we should be doing that um, within the next few weeks. So uh, it's not done yet, but we have gotten past some of the biggest hurdles. Many of our uh, audience listeners are health tech entrepreneurs or they lead uh, healthcare startups um, uh, looking for innovative solution to address challenges in healthcare. And so what California policy do they need to understand to help them identify the right opportunity to bring their technology to market? Um, uh, I mean, I think just generally there, there's a lot of healthcare policy that's moving through the legislature and moves every year. Um, legislation re- relating to cost containment, um, whether around pharmaceuticals or um, or other uh, healthcare uh, costs, legislation to try to make it easier for people to access healthcare, whether um, you know virtual uh, healthcare or remote, you know healthcare. Uh, just creating more flexibility in the system, and I think that that some of the flexibility and some of the reforms do open the door to better technology technology solutions. Um, but there are times also when people come up with technology solutions and they realize that it's not legal under state law. And so I think we like to know about those kinds of situations. We want to make sure um, that we are having flexibility in our healthcare system and not just assuming that because this is how we've always done it, it needs to always be done uh, that way. Um, so, yeah. 
That's great. Well, thank you. Thanks for sharing your insight. Thanks for uh, sharing your uh, story. And thank you for your service. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Health Technology Podcast. We want to thank our executive producer, Herminio Neto, and our podcast engineer, Andrew Rojek. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. The Health Technology Podcast is available on all major platforms.